open up your Bibles to Ephesians 6, where we will be reading from today. Who's got their Bible today? Let's see them. Raise them up high. Who's got their Bibles? Sweet. I love serving a church that loves their Bibles. Well, shortly after 9-11-2001, I found myself depressed and alone, laying on a cot in the attic of a house that was rented by my professional basketball coach in Bergen, Norway. A week or so earlier, on September 11th, I boarded a plane in Seattle to fly to Norway to play for the Ulriken Eagles. I was over Copenhagen when the Twin Towers got hit. This was uh, a low-level uh, professional basketball club in the Basketball League of Norway. I always thought it was uh, funny that they didn't name it the Norwegian Basketball Association because then I could say I played for the NBA, but I didn't. It was the BLNO. Now, it had not turned out well. My country was trying to figure out who to go to war against. My girlfriend and my family were at home scared. I couldn't talk to them often because the phone lines were going crazy across the Atlantic. And in my little corner of the world, I was playing for what turned out to be a bankrupt club who couldn't provide me anything stipulated in my contract, thus laying on a cot in my coach's attic. And all of this was with a coach who was not the kindest nor most understanding individual on the planet, and that is putting it very, very nicely. Take your worst coach, multiply it by a million, and that was the coach I had. I had quit the team over financial and emotional disagreements. The team had threatened to sue me. I had to go to the press. It was a terrible, terrible situation, all at the age of 22. And I was stranded because no flights were entering back into the U.S. So there I was, laying on a cot in the attic of the coach who hated me, So stressed that I went through three nights of insomnia, and if you know me at all, I don't have any problem sleeping. So there I was. Reaching out in boredom and frustration, I grabbed a Bible that my sister had given me and sent with me, and I started reading. Now, some of you have heard my story before, and none of this is new to you, but what I want to point out to you is the fine point that the impression I had in those early morning hours of insomnia was that I was done playing basketball and that I was going to be working for Christ. Literally, that was the impression on my heart. I didn't hear a voice, but that was the impression upon my heart. After I got home, I talked to my uncle, a pastor, uh, who recommended to go, uh, that I go to a small school of ministry on their church campus, which I did. And in my initial burst of zeal, I tried that for a term, but quickly fell back into my fleshly ways uh, when my father asked me to take over a job up in Washington. My job dictated my faith. If I couldn't do it vocationally, then it wasn't going to be core to who I was. All of a sudden, because of a change in work, I wasn't attending church, I wasn't reading my Bible, I wasn't fellowshipping with other disciples, I wasn't walking in obedience at all. In fact, I was walking in blatant rebellion. I fell back into old habits that I had before I started following Christ. A few years later, after struggling in my marriage and work, all while walking in blatant disobedience to the God I said I served, Kelly and I started attending a church, the church that we got sent out of down here. My focus turned then, not from just being sinful to being a Christian, but my focus turned to being on staff. I wanted to be on staff at a church. I wanted nothing more than to combine my vocation and my walk with Christ. I find this is often the case with a lot of young people. My thought was, this other job that I have is getting in the way of serving Jesus, so if I could just get on staff at a church, then 100% of my work will be to the Lord, and just like that, in my life, a new idol was birthed. I'd convinced myself that when I felt that impression in Norway that I was done playing basketball and I was supposed to be working for Christ, that that meant being on staff at a church. It was supposed to be my vocation. And when that didn't happen, bitterness and depression crept in. Well, time passed and some maturity came. And I gave up on the idea of being on staff there at that church. But the opportunity to plant a church came into view. I was a lay elder and I decided to uh, look at church planting. And we took the opportunity and came down here. And Patrick uh, Schneider, the other elder, did as well. The Lord has been very gracious to see us through to where we stand today, 17 years removed from that early morning call in Norway. We started the church on the exact date, 10 years to the day that I felt that call. But here's what I want to point out to you. 
As I've studied scripture and sought the Lord and wise counsel and built a theology of the topic of work, which we will discuss today, I've come to two conclusions. First, the conviction that overcame me as I read the word there in Norway 17 years ago, it was indeed a call. But the call was not into a vocation. The call was away from the idolatry that I practiced towards basketball and greed and success and womanizing and the world. And it was a call towards giving my allegiance, my trust, my faithfulness, my love and obedience to Jesus, my Savior, my King and Lord, regardless of my vocation or work. Second, while I have ended up in full-time vocational ministry, and I am thankful for that, I have come to realize that a good theology of the topic of work is one that realizes that any and every job is one in which we can serve the Lord and be faithful to Him 100% of the time. Obviously, this excludes occupations that blatantly rebel against God's heart, you know, drug dealing, prostitution, those kind of things, right? But other than that, any and every job is one in which we can serve Jesus 100%. And so what we're going to discuss today is how we do that, how we serve the Lord in the midst of our working relationships as employers and employees. And hopefully Paul will help us to see that whether we are on staff in ministry at a church, on staff with the parachurch, or simply being obedient in the miraculously mundane of going to a cubicle or putting on our work boots, or being a stay-at-home mom. In all of these, we can serve Jesus passionately. Paul has spent the last couple of chapters here in Ephesians taking the theology of who God is and what he did through his son Jesus Christ and, and applies it to God's new society. And so Paul's rightly taking a good deal of time telling us that our relationships, the very relationships we hold with one another, they actually proclaim to the world who we are and what the truth of God is. And so he started with sisters and brothers in the church, submitting one to another. He rolled into husbands and wives and then parents and children. We talked about those who are unmarried as brothers and sisters as well. And all of this is working by the Holy Spirit within the church to proclaim to the world that we are a different people, a new society, a new family. And so in this grouping of texts named by Martin Luther, as the household code, we now move into this idea of master and bondservant or master and slave, some of your uh, Bibles might read. Now, we'll get into what that means in a second because those words in our ears, they do not ring well, as they should not, but we'll talk about that. In our contemporary application today, though, what I want you to hear is employer and employee, and I'll show you why I believe that's the case. Let's start by reading our text there in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's first set our eyes correctly with this understanding that we need of the background of the biblical theology here and the, the cultural background to understand what's happening. The first thing I want you to understand is this. I want you to understand a biblical theology behind two topics, authority and work. A biblical theology behind authority and work. Last week, we spent a good deal of time going over the idea of obedience. If you didn't, uh, weren't here for that, uh, I would highly recommend that we, you go back and listen to those teachings. Uh, that teaching, it's already up uh, from last week. But core to this idea of obedience and authority is that in God's world, there is authority. I talked a few weeks ago about how the idea of uh, a Christian anarchist is it's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. Okay? And who is our ultimate authority, everyone? Jesus. Jesus is. Jesus is the one that will judge us at the end of days. And Jesus is ultimately under subjection to who? The Father. Very good. The Creator God. 
Look at what Paul says here. I'm going to throw it up on the board. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 27. We've read this a lot. It's talking about the end of days. And here's what it says happens at the end of days. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. In other words, he's the only power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, guys, that's not just speaking of Satan and his demonic realm. That's also speaking of who? Any human being who is not his. You're either an enemy of Christ or you're his. And the last enemy, he says, to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. God the Father is the ultimate authority. But from his authority, he then appoints people and institutions as sub-authorities. We as Christians in the West, especially the West Coast, we're really good at saying, yeah, God is my authority, right? The question is, does it play out in your life? But even beyond that, what I find funny is that we'll say God is our authority, but then any other authority in the human realm, we are done with. No way. I am self-made man. But the reality is, is that can't exist biblically because from his authority, he then appoints people and institutions as sub-authorities. Adam and Eve, for example, were sub-regents. We see this play out in how God keeps order in this broken, chaotic world. This is not his perfect plan, totally. And we'll talk about that in a second. But in this broken and chaotic world where sin is still at play, look at what he says about governments. And notice he doesn't say a party here. He doesn't say Republican, Democrat, or Independent. He just says government. This is Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Here we see that in God's ordered world, in the midst of this chaos, he has put in place roles of leadership and authority and roles of submission. Now, Paul wrote this when Nero was in power. Nero makes any president we have or ever will have or ever had look like a pipsqueak in terms of bad leadership. He was a horrible leader. He dipped Christians in wax and then hung them up and lit them on fire, rode through the streets naked in his chariot screaming, Christians are the light of the world! Right? Pretty bad stuff. And a simple survey of church history shows that Christians are still called, even during this time, to obey the authority structure of the state. But only as it is ultimately reflecting God's authority. See, that's the kicker. We are to obey the authority. The police pull you over, you obey them. They tell you to renounce Jesus on the spot, you stand up and say, take me to jail. See the difference? One has to do with simple governing authority. One has to do with denying Christ. So as long as it falls within God's authority and God's plan to keep order in this world, we follow it. In those areas that the authority of the state did not honor God, then Christians have always been called to stand up against it and expose it. A similar truth exists within the church. You guys have read this before, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is totally not present in the church anymore. Who is the source of all authority in most contemporary Christian churches? It's the individual sitting in the seat. It just doesn't exist in the church. Submit to our leaders? Why would we do that? Leaders in the church have betrayed their parishioners. That is totally true. But the solution for misuse is not disuse. It's proper use. Hold us as leaders accountable 
to using our authority for the good of the kingdom. Paul is helping us understand in chapters 5 and 6 of Ephesians that these same roles of authority exist in the home and in the workplace and in the church. So why then do we have such a problem with it? Why then do we not want to submit so badly? I don't want to submit sometimes. When Patrick or other leaders are pressing me, right, uh, we're going to be opening up some of our leadership meetings for you guys once we're in the building. Right now, we just can't do it because the room is too small. (laughs) But once we get in the building, we have more room. We'll let you guys come in and see. And you'll see in the midst of our leadership meetings that I'll throw out an idea, and then everybody will shoot it down, and I won't want to submit. I have a vision. I want to go a certain direction. And then I realize, well, there's 19 of them and one of me. I should probably submit, right? All of us don't want to submit sometimes. Why is that? Well, I think it's because our rugged individualism that is so often praised in this culture. It kills the supervision or the authority of others. And oftentimes, rightly so, it's also because authority figures in our life have abused that authority. And so we reject authority altogether. We had our parenting class yesterday, and I was so thankful for one of the people who said in the parenting class, yeah, my, when I hear authority, I have a different context because my dad was so heavily authoritarian. Many of us in this room might say, yeah, that's me too. So when I hear authority, I start to think abuse. And I'm sorry for that. But the solution for misuse is not disuse, it's proper use. You cannot read the Bible without understanding proper authority. And so in order to understand our text today, we have to understand that in the midst of this chaotic and broken world, God has ordered certain things so that he can keep the chaos at a minimum. Remember, church, that we follow a Messiah who is fully submitted to his Father, a Messiah who fully obeys his Father. If Jesus recognized the importance of an ordered world as well as the need for submission and obedience, then so should we. Jackie Hill Perry, many of you might be familiar with her. She's a Christian spoken word artist. She's a Bible teacher. Uh, She's also an author. She said this recently. I'm not going to do it justice either because her rhyming is so much better than me. But I'll just read the content. You can go listen to her say it. She said, They say submission sounds like servant. That sounds like something to rebel against. Ain't it funny how being a servant is repulsive to everyone but God? And we wonder why we can't recognize his face. See, the reality is, is we serve a Messiah who is a servant. It's the greatest servant of all who's obedient and submitted to the Father. And so to understand the Bible, we must understand authority. And we have to understand that the reason for a lot of the institutions that will eventually go away, they are here now because we live in an in-between age. To understand why this world needs order is to first understand that this current age, the church age, is not the redeemed age of the new heaven and the new earth. I'll give you the example that's often presented to me. Everybody turn in your Bibles just one book back to Galatians and go to Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek... There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I've had this text presented to me many times to mean that all differences and differentiations have been destroyed within the church age because the church is a picture of the kingdom. And so those that walk in maturity should see no differentiation between various characteristics and roles. There's no male nor female, so we should get rid of Ephesians 5, submission of wives to husbands, for example. But dear church, if that were the case in this age, why would Paul, who wrote Galatians, write later in Ephesians that these roles exist, matter, and it is within them that we can witness to our obedience to Christ and his glory? He would be a double-minded man. But if we take a quick look at the context here and we read verses 26 through 29, we'll see that what this is talking about is that unlike the Old Covenant, where being a Gentile meant you were separated from God by various ways, now within the New Covenant, there is nothing that holds anyone back from coming to Christ and being one with him. And this is what the Galatians text is talking about. Look at verse 26 there. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It's speaking about the promise of eternal life, the promise of being part of God's covenant people. You see, when perfection comes, as we discussed a few weeks ago, when there is a new heaven and a new earth and Christ does reign physically and fully, there will be no distinction. All nations will surround the throne and praise him. It won't matter what nation or ethnicity you come from. All of us will be fully sons and daughters of Christ, regardless of if we're parents or children. My two sons and daughter will stand next to me as brothers and sisters in Christ, just as I will stand next to them. It won't be parent and child any longer. All of us will be co-equal heirs of grace, and marriage won't be needed anymore. There will need to be no longer any submission within the home as far as wives and husbands go. But dear brothers and sisters, that is not yet. We're aiming for that, longing for that, but that is not yet. To believe that that is to be applied right now is to discard much of the New Testament and to realize that the fullness of the kingdom is not fully here yet. But to say that it is, there's a phrase for it in theology. It's called over-realized eschatology. You can write that down. It's a phrase you'll hear. Eschatology means study of the last days. Over-realized eschatology is to take the resurrection, to take the new heaven and the new earth and say that it happens now and expect people to exist in that now, but to do so sets people up for failure. You know why? Because sin still reigns. Satan is still the prince of the power of the air. He still runs this world. We are secret agents in the midst of it. We submit to the king in the kingdom, yes, but his kingdom reigns in the hearts of his people. It doesn't reign in the institutions. And so in these broken institutions, in the midst of chaos, Christ maintains a semblance of common grace rule by allowing there to be these structures. And so Paul's aim, as with all Scripture, is to figure out how within this broken system we currently exist within, we can keep order and best witness to the glory of God. And so while in the redeemed world ahead there will be no need for employer and employee, no distinction according to rich or poor, that is not yet. And so Paul wants us to show, wants to show us as much of the redeemed nature of Christ's kingdom in this present reality as possible all in the midst of chaos. And so that's the theology of authority I want you to hold in the back of your mind as we step into this text and look at the idea of work. But we also need to understand the theology not only of authority, but also of work. In God's authority and divine will, he has commanded us to be creatures that work. This is the origin of a good theology of work. Our purpose is to work. You know the one place in the world that is the worst place to try and teach this lesson? Anywhere around Portland, Oregon. You know why? What is Portland, Oregon known for? It's where somewhat wealthy young hipsters come to retire. That is literally a bumper sticker. It's literally a bumper sticker. Bend right now is having a huge crisis because so many people are moving into it from San Francisco who are making six figures by telecommuting three days a week. And all the people that live in Bend that aren't from the IT sector of San Francisco can't find work and aren't able to afford life because the status of living is so high because everyone else can afford it. Oregon is the place people go to retire early because, man, that's heaven, isn't it? No work. But folks, we were created to work. Look at our purpose statements in the garden. Look at Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, for all the hunters in the room, I appreciate hunting. This was not your purpose statement to go hunting. Okay? Another problem I run into in Oregon. Here's another purpose statement. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to retire and sit on his rear end. No. What does it say? To work it and keep it, Genesis 2.15. The first involves marriage and parenting, which are both avenues of work. They take effort to go well and be fruitful. The second is broken down into two words in the Hebrew, avad and shamar. The first is a root word that means to work 
or tend the land, cultivate it. And this is pre-fall, guys. Work didn't come because of the curse. Toil did. Totally different. Secondly, he was to guard it and protect it. Shamar is a word that means to fight. It means to stand as a guard in the gate to fight against what's coming. And so Adam and Eve were to work and to protect this area of the garden. It was the place where God and man dwelt together. It was a temple, so to speak. And the bottom line is is that we were made to work. All the curse did was make it harder for us to be successful at that purpose and mission. Look at what Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread." Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This work that we are commanded to perform would culminate in divine dominion over all creation. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Bring Christ's kingdom to bear. In that divine dominion, we would bring forth in the culture we were supposed to build. It was supposed to glorify God in his ultimate beauty. And the work of mankind can either glorify God or rebel against him. The same talents and genius go into making medications that help sick children and go into making nuclear weapons that will destroy all of mankind. The same genius was given by God. And so the work of mankind can either glorify God or rebel against him. How do you view work? Do you view work as a chance to glorify God or as something to get away from? Here's how you can tell. What do you think heaven is? Your view of heaven will show your view of work. Is heaven a place where you get to labor in worship of God and work in service of others? Or is it a place where you finally get to retire from work completely? Is it a place where you finally get away from all those other people that you can't stand and you get to isolate Is it a place where you get to do your hobbies 24-7? That is the American view of heaven, and it is nowhere found in the Bible. See, the reality is, is I often hear people talking about the retirement plans. It doesn't matter what age they are, and what they want is some land far away, out in the country, away from people, away from work. Do you recognize that Revelation 21, when it pictures heaven, We are surrounded by people in a city laboring in worship to God. What is your view of paradise? It'll tell you your view of work. Work is not innately bad. The only differentiation is who you're doing it for. Are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it for the Lord? And so as an employer or an employee, pretty much everyone in here is covered because Uh, Those of you that are stay-at-home moms, you even are working. In a sense, you are the employer and the employee of your own home, and you get paid diddly for it. Your activity and work in all these things can glorify God regardless of the job. So now let's look back at Ephesians. Go there with me again, even though we already read it, and let's take a look at the first section there to bondservants. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. What I want you to write down for this section here is this simply. Employees, obey your employers so that you might witness to Christ's ultimate authority. Employees, obey your employers so that you might witness to Christ's ultimate authority. The first thing we need to notice here is that Paul is addressing servants or slaves. The word in the Greek is douloi, which is the plural of the word bondservants or slaves. And we will, with our contemporary eyes, read into this section all the horrific nature of slavery in our country's past, and I would even say in our country's present. And that is good and right that we fight against that. Don't ever lose that. You should always flinch when you hear the word slave, as we will talk about on Freedom Sunday in a couple of weeks. 
Remember that our God is the God that freed his people from slavery. Our God is the one that sent his son to die on the cross to free you and I from enslavement to sin. Breaking slavery is his character and his desire. But we also should not let that contemporary view cloud what Paul is saying here. We need to understand the principle behind it. The word servant and slave here had a meaning that needs to be recognized from that day. In Paul's day, indentured servitude was part of the fabric of society. In the Roman Empire, it is estimated that a high percentage of the population, if not the majority, were servants or slaves. Perhaps as many at one time in Paul's life as 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Now, we hear that word and we think slave ships, bondage, and those things are true and they're terrible. This idea of servant was slightly different. It was the workforce of the day. You could be a slave and be a domestic servant, but you could also be a laborer, a construction worker. You could be a doctor, a teacher, an accountant, and an administrator. And most often you were still a slave. To be the house steward, for example, was a massive job. It was like the CEO of a company because what you were doing was running a house in which it provided work for all of the people in the lower caste system. In this day, the fabric of society was a system of workforce that included bondservants. If you were to remove that system of servitude in that day and instantly remove it without the Industrial Revolution, without a lot of other variables, you would have crushed society and sent many to their death from starvation and homelessness. It was how people worked. Raise your hand if you've seen Downton Abbey. Okay, like seven of you. Any of you ever seen BBC shows about butlers and maids, any of that stuff? Okay. If you watch those shows, what you'll recognize is that the butlers and the, servant, the, the, the maids and the servants, if they didn't have those jobs, they would most likely starve. The house of aristocracy kept people in work. You didn't have the IT sector back then, right? And so we have to translate all of this into our current day and understand that Paul is really talking not about the institution of slavery that, praise God, was abolished to an extent and we are still working to fight against every other form of slavery. He's talking about servitude in the sense of work, employers and employees. Often within the system of the Romans, servants would be set free to establish their own homes and businesses and they would start employing other servants. Now, at the same time, I want us to notice that Paul was also an ex-member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the ruling class of Israel. He was also a Roman citizen. Here's a question for you. Did Paul need to acknowledge a slave in that day and age? No. He didn't at all. It would have been totally normal and moral for him to not even speak to bondservants. But here he addresses them. Why? Because he's operating in the worldview of Christ, that the last shall be first. And so Paul realizes that the employment and work system in the world is flawed. But in his mind, to correct it was not to instantaneously overthrow it in this age, but to recognize the dignity of the people within it. It was his understanding that once the Industrial Revolution came to pass, uh, or sorry, it was this understanding that once the Industrial Revolution came to pass, this idea of what Paul had here, of giving dignity to those that were servants, This actually enabled many Christians to become uh, fighters against the system of slavery. This gave way to the removal of slavery. Now, Paul's hope, as we noted in Galatians 3, is the ultimate redemption and creation of the new heaven and the new earth. But for now, Paul works within the ordered system to bring about the witness of God's glory. And so his command is, obey your earthly masters making a distinction, obviously, that we have a heavenly master, ultimately in the same way that we obey Christ, we need to obey our employers, our earthly masters. And he makes a distinction here that we don't want to do it as eye service or as people pleasers. You see, how you respond to the people that are authority figures in your life is probably how you also respond to the authority of Jesus Christ. Are you a people pleaser, an eye server? So when the boss comes along, oh, i got to work really hard. Boss walks away. Man, that boss is such a jerk. Pastor comes along. Oh, pastor, how you doing? Thanks for the service today. I can't. That pastor's such a jerk. I can't. His opinions are so terrible. Did you know he's wrong? Right. Are we eye service people pleasers? 
Or are we people that realize that our highest master, Jesus Christ, is constantly watching and inspecting our hearts? Character is made in the times when no one else is around. And so his call to employees is don't obey only when your employer is around or your parent is around or your husband or wife is around or your pastor or elders are around. Work heartily at all times. Serve heartily at all times. This is what Colossians 3.22 says. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You see, whatever job you do, you're serving Jesus. On my best days, I think, man, I'm like, I'm like David serving Jesus, slaying Goliath. On my worst days in this job, guys, I feel like that one dude who's standing in the middle of a bean field and was told to protect the lentils from the enemy. That doesn't sound very exciting. Can I go fight Goliath? But see, whatever job you do, you're doing it for the Lord. Whatever job you do, you're doing it for the Lord. And Paul gives two reasons for this command to not be I, uh, by way of eye service or as people pleasers. First, he infers that this reflects your relationship with Christ, which we've already talked about. But he also is giving the understanding here that we're supposed to proclaim the gospel to our employers. Imagine the day, employees, when you sit with your boss and your boss says, hey, so you're a Christian, right? What, what is that all about? And you start to tell them about how Jesus died for your sins, resurrected and ascended as king, and he sits in his throne and rules over the hearts of his people. And we are called to be his disciples, his followers, and his citizens, obeying his rule in our lives. If we haven't done a good job of showing that we agree with authority and follow it, how well do you think that that conversation is going to go? You see, to obey the authority of Jesus is also to show that we obey authorities here on earth. It helps in our proclamation of the gospel. Paul's inferring that we can know how we submit to Christ by how we submit to our earthly employers. One commentator, Woost, puts it this way. He says, We can tell how we view God and his dominion of mastery and judgment by the way we work. Do we only work when we are seen hypocritically, or are we working hard all the time? To be an eye-pleaser is the service that is done only when one is under the master's eye, and obedience to save appearances and gain undeserved favor which is not rendered when the master is absent as it is when his scrutiny is on us. Do we only obey Christ on Sunday mornings for two hours? When we are seen or not seen? It's a really good question to ponder. Secondly, though, Paul states that the employee, the servant, has reason to obey and respect their employer because, the second reason, they will be judged. Look again at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or a free. He says the same thing to masters, as we'll see in a second. Paul is trying to encourage the servant that even though they got the short end of the stick as the laborer on this earth. Guys, why are we born as Americans? Because we deserved it? No, because that's how it played out. Why are some of my friends in Burkina Faso that are starving right now and have malaria right now, why were they born there? Because they're lesser? No, because that's how it played out. And the reality is, is that we must take our blessing and our, what has been given to us in generosity by God, and we must help even the playing field. We must help those people who are in those positions, not because they're less than us and they need us, but because God has blessed us to be the avenues of grace in that capacity. It does not matter your role or position in life. What matters is that you fulfill that role or position obediently, with contentment. Whether you're a laborer, whether you're the CEO of a company, whether you're the wealthiest person in town. If you're in a role as an employee or maybe you are poor, you, you feel like, Lord, I can't get ahead financially. What matters is not your role, but your obedience. Look at what Paul says that Timothy is supposed to tell his church. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, 
See, what that's saying is if your, your boss is a believer and you, you know, are cutting out work time to read your Bible and you're actually stealing money from the company by reading your Bible during work time, well, my boss will understand he's a Christian. What this is saying is don't do that. Not a good idea. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. What matters is your, not your role, but your obedience in it. Likewise, if you're an employer or maybe you're wealthy, then what matters is not your role, but your obedience within it. Look at what Paul tells Timothy to tell those who are wealthy in his church. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, it doesn't matter what your role is. It matters your obedience in it. It doesn't matter your wealth. It matters your obedience within it. Now, this is not saying that we are saved by our works, but church, read the Bible, and you will see that we are judged by our works. Wait a minute, what? We are saved by grace, but we are judged by works. Read Revelation. Every single time it talks about judgment, it says we're judged by our works. Well, how can the two be the same? Because if you are saved by God's grace, you will work on his behalf. And it will show in your life. We are not saved by a simple prayer. We are not saved by any activity of our own. We are saved by the unwarranted amazing grace of God that he reached in and saved broken, sinful, rebellious people like us, enemies, and then regenerated our hearts, poured out his spirit into us so that we might work for him. We will be judged by our works, and if we are obedient, Paul says we will receive reward. One might say, Hans, should I never try and better myself or succeed? I should just stay in my position, even though I'm not making enough to put food on the table or any of that. No, Folks, if you get a chance to better your position, then go for it. But here's the thing. What kind of a witness are you making to a boss where you go into a job, you commit to that job, and then the second something better comes along, you leave that job and leave that boss in a lurch? You are witnessing by your actions. Here's what Paul said to the people in Corinth. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. See, he says, if you got the chance, better yourself. But he's saying, realize that it's not about being a slave or being free. It's about obedience. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when, when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Well, back in Ephesians, Paul turns his comments from the employee, the servant, to the master. Let's take a look at Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, do the same to them, to your slaves or your employees, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. What we can learn from this is this point. This is my last main point. You can write this down. Employers, treat your employees justly so that you might witness to Christ's loving authority. You see, just as Paul already said to parents, parents, you have a job to show the Father God's heart. Children, you have a job to show the obedience of the children to the Father. Just as he said to husbands, husbands, you need to love your wives to show the love of Christ. Wives, you need to submit to your husbands to show the position of a Christian submitting to Christ. These things are all pictures that we proclaim the gospel with our lives to the world. And similarly here, just as Christ is the master and we are his servants, employers and employees should treat one another in a way that shows and proclaims the good news of the gospel. Now this is unreal, what Paul just wrote here. We gloss over it, but recognize what he is saying in first century Roman Empire. Masters, do the same to them. In Paul's day and age, I cannot adequately express to you how paradigm-shifting this was. 
When we realized that caste systems were part of the societal fabric of the first century, and it was believed to be divinely ordained as to which class you were born into. I think we still have this laying under the surface, as I said before, especially as Americans. Well, we're special. That's why we were born into America. But that is just not true. Again, with those BBC dramas like Downton Abbey, you watch those and you see that the king and the aristocracy thought they were in the position they were in because God ordained it. He said, Michael McEwen, you are going to be in this position because, gosh darn it, you're good enough and I know you're going to be a good leader. And that's still very much part of Christianity, isn't it? This elected leader is going to be the one God ordained. But guys, that's not how it plays out. What Paul is saying here flies in the face of that belief system. He is stating clearly that all men and women are created equally, and it does not matter your status or wealth, all deserve the same respect. You may be placed in roles that exist because we are in a broken and fallen world, but that does not remove the dignity of the person in that role. The institutional order of governmental authority is of God. The people who fill those roles are not special. The question is, is do they obey God or not? And for us today, we must realize that it does not matter whether we are born rich or poor, American or not, one ethnicity or another. Every human deserves dignity and respect. Had a brother ask me a simple question one day. I, I loved this. He said, hey, you know, how's, how's it going with uh, work of justice at your church? And so I was telling him all these cool things. And he threw out this idea. He said, yeah, I threw it out to my church. I asked them the question, how do they treat their waiters and waitresses? Do you thank them when they bring you water? Do you leave a big tip? Or do you not acknowledge them because they're there to serve you? Justice comes in the simple things. The kind of respect we need to show people is the respect that's equal among people. So for employers, God commands them to treat those in roles subservient to them with the same respect that they want to receive. Especially, Paul says, in the area of threatening. Why focus on this one thing in this one sentence? Well, we need to think about the definition of abuse. Here's one that is a definition of abuse. There's probably many out there, but here's one. Abuse is improper treatment of an entity to unfairly gain and maintain control. Correct authority is only that authority given by God in so much as it reflects his loving, sacrificial, moral, and truthful character and will. We've already talked about that. Abuse of authority is when one party wants to gain power over another and uses manipulative, violent, or controlling tactics to do so. And so, with an employer, Paul is saying, act in righteousness and justice, treating the employee as God's image bearer. Remember that these are pointed, these comments are pointed at people that are part of the Ephesians church. Paul knew that masters and bondservants would be going to church together and then going to work together. Often when a master was converted, the servant would quickly follow. And Paul wants them in their relationship to witness to the glory of God. He wants them to remember that they are first and foremost. As Paul said to Philemon in the reading from earlier, they are first and foremost brothers, not master and servant. Just like husband and wife are first and foremost brother and sister. And just as parents, you and your children are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. How is it possible to witness to God's glory in the roles of employee and employer, master and servant? Well, because you're showing a picture. You're showing a picture that Christ is the master of the church and we are his willing servants. Think about some of the wording that Paul uses there in 1 Corinthians. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Dear brothers and sisters, is that how you think of yourself? When you wake up in the morning, do you think, today is my day, I'm going to do what I want to do? Or do you think, today is the day that I realize I was bought with a price. My life is not my own. This is what Paul was calling us to. Brothers and sisters, when Christ came to this earth, he showed us what it meant to be a servant, and he calls us to follow in his steps. You remember the upper room? 
Did Jesus sit on a throne and say, everyone else, serve me? What did he do? He put aside his garments and washed the feet of the disciples to show his love for his brethren. This was God incarnate, acting as a servant, the lowest of servants. And then he went to the ultimate act of loving service. He went to the cross. He went to pay the price for all we have done in rebellion against our Father God. And when he rose again three days later, we were set free from the slave master of sin and set free from death and hell. But we were not set free to run our own lives. We were set free so that he might mark us as his own with the seal of the Holy Spirit so that we might obey, follow, and serve him. If not, then we are marked with loyalty and allegiance to this world alone. We all bear a mark of who our master is. The question is, is who's the master? Today, I would beg of you, if you do not know Jesus Christ, choose to let him purchase you by his blood. If you do know him, then think about these phrases and ask, was I bought at a price, and do I rightly see my life that way? We need to rightly call Jesus master and Lord and serve him. Now, I know that to us, this may seem politically incorrect and even evil to say such a thing. But church, in the first century, a servant knew they had one of two options. Serve an evil master that will destroy you and beat you and ask of you things that you cannot perform and condemn you. Or, if you're lucky enough to find a master that is compassionate and that will give you life and liberty and love, serve them. And so when a first century slave found a master that would do that, they would give their life to them. In that case, you were happy to take their mark because that would mean that you were theirs and no one else could purchase you away from them. It was a sense of safety. Look at this strange act in Deuteronomy with me. Go there to Deuteronomy 15 in your Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then Deuteronomy, the fifth book, Deuteronomy, chapter 15. Verses 12 through 8. Give me an amen when you're there. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. Guys, this treatment of servants, even though it's slavery, was unheard of in this day. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God, the Lord your God, redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if that servant, if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all. You know what an all is? It's like a screwdriver with a point on the end, you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at the half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So Yahweh, your God, will bless you in all that you do. Anybody else find that very strange? Why would a servant want this to happen? Well, a better question is this. Why would a servant that found a master that cares for them desire to go take on life on their own, knowing they would most likely just get pilfered by an evil master at some point? They wouldn't. They would choose to stay as a servant to the caring master. These servants marked themselves as owned by the caring master through an all in their ear, a piercing It speaks beautifully of the work of Christ. Through the piercing that Christ received on the cross, he stated unequivocally that he was the foremost of servants, dying for you and for me. And he has given to you his place as a member of the household of his father. He is the ultimate servant, obedient to God, and he calls you and I to follow him in that obedience. And if we choose to do so, he pours out his spirit that is holy upon us and we are sealed with the mark 
of Christ as our master. Look at Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We bear the mark of Jesus Christ by the lives we live. And so this gives us reasoning as to why employers, earthly masters, are to treat their employees well. They are not the master. They are simply acting in a role of authority and really provision and care while on this earth. A good employer is one who cares for their employees. But one day that role will go away and all things will be made new and the employer and the employee, just like the husband and wife, just like the child and parent, will have to approach the judgment seat of God and answer to the same master. And that master is not partial. He is impartial based on perfect justice and we will all receive from him according to our actions. Now again, some might protest and say, wait, Hans, I'm I'm a Christian. Even if I mess up and threaten my employee or sin against God in some other way, my sins are forgiven, right? And I would say, yes, that's true. If you confess them, repent from them, and allow God's Holy Spirit to change you so that you might more accurately reflect Christ, whether an employee or an employer. If you decide to be a terrible employee or an abusive employer, the word is clear. You are not walking in repentance or regeneration. You need to confess it and repent it from it and walk in zealous purpose to reflect the truth of Christ in your working relationships. And so the problem in all these relationships and situations, folks, as we finish up this household code, in marriage, in parenting, in our vocation, is that we are looking for fulfillment and purpose in the wrong places. It's not about searching for fulfillment in a new job. It's not about searching for fulfillment in a new spouse. It's not about searching for fulfillment in your children's successes. It's about fulfilling your purpose in Christ right where you are at. To tend and keep and conquer in the role you're in. If we do this, this is what leads to fulfillment through obedience to Christ. We must view our work not as the end of fulfillment, but as the means to obedience to our God in which we will find our purpose. And so this morning, I want to give you, lastly, this last slide, I want to give you seven pieces of application very quickly, and then we'll be done. First, all of us, I would ask of us to examine our belief around work. I recognize that some points through my teaching today might have stung for some of us in this room. But the point is, is I want you to take that stinging and ask, is it justified? Is it something that I need to go back to the Word and see if I'm convicted of? Examine our belief around work. Have I bought into the lie that my job is my identity and my contentment? Or have I bought into the lie that work is evil and God's goodness is when I get to get away from work? Either of those are false beliefs. Examine your belief around work. Secondly, I would call all of us to recognize our work as a missionary field. The people that you work with, who would they say your master is? Do they know you follow Christ? Do you get along with your coworkers? Are you kind to them? Do they come to you for wisdom because they know that you know the master of wisdom? These are all things we should check with ourselves on because our work is our missionary field. Third, we need to respect one another as co-workers. As employees, we need to respect our employers. As employers, we need to respect our employees. If this has not been the case, then today's the day to repent and treat one another as image bearers of Christ. Fourth, we need to work heartily without complaining. I was driving along one day, one morning uh, in Burkina, and there's a dude out in the middle of a desert hacking at rocks, not kidding you. And I said, dude, Marcel, what, what is that guy doing? He said, oh, he's working. I said, well, he's just taking a beat-up chisel and trying to break rocks. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's his farmland. He's trying to work. I remember that picture every time I want to complain about my job. Are we content? 
or do we complain? Does the boss give us something new or something that stretches us and we push back or do we say, I will work heartily as unto the Lord? Number five, we all need to learn contentment in our job. Man, this is hugely convicting for me. I'm doing what I've always dreamed of doing and yet I still find myself complaining. We all need to learn contentment. Number six, we need to be generous with our wages for the kingdom. If Christ is the Lord of our job, uh, then what is given to us through that job is his, and we must reflect Jesus in how we spend our money. It is not ours, it is his by provision. He is our boss. He is our master. And number seven, we need to find rest in Christ, not in vacations or the weekend. I'm so sad for Christians who miss the five or six days where they have a mission field that is ripe for the picking because they're so busy waiting to get to the weekend. Find your rest in Christ in the middle of work and weekends will just be another day. All of it will be filled with the joy of Jesus Christ and the knowledge that he is your gracious master who has purchased you by his blood and he has commissioned you to be sent out to draw other people, other people that are sitting under a slave master that is horrible, the slave master of sin and death and hell. He wants you to grab those people and bring them to him so that he can be the compassionate master and the giver of liberty that he is.